it starts. Okay. We're ready now to look at the next step in the ladder of Yama Niyama, and that is Asteya. Asteya means non-stealing, non-misappropriation, taking something either in a wrong way or something that should not be taken at all. And of course, honesty comes in there. Basically, it's considered, though, abstinence from stealing. Vyasa defines this as the improper appropriation to oneself of others' things. Then, very importantly, he says, refusal to do it in freedom from desire is non-stealing. In other words, real asteya is being free of all desire, and therefore a person would not want anything at all. We all know what constitutes ordinary stealing, but human beings have thought up countless ways to steal and not seem to be stealing. All the way from putting slugs in pay telephones to getting people to give us things or money we neither need nor deserve. Theft and untruth are certainly interrelated. So it's good to analyze Vyasa's definition and then apply it to our life situations. But let's consider a few fudges that have become very respectable and very prevalent. One form of theft is taking the credit that really belongs to another. Plagiarism, especially in academic matters. One time on a website, we were all astounded to see um, an essay I had written and posted on our OCOY website that actually said an article by and then gave this supposed sadhu's name. Taking what is not ours in any form is also stealing while pretending we either own it or have it coming to us. A lot of people do this in the matter of inheritance. There are some people who leave their body, they haven't made a will, and then their relatives will say, oh, she told me I could have that, and in good faith the others let them have it, when it isn't even true. I knew a man that broke into the house of an uncle and stole an antique marble top table because he was so determined to have it. Of course, anyone with good sense could know that was theft. It's also theft to take what is not legitimately coming to us, even if it's freely given. People do this continually in relation to welfare benefits and insurance claims. I'm sorry to say I grew up seeing people cheat on insurance, and some of them were Sunday school teachers even. One example I can give was of a friend of ours who practiced drugless therapies and was a very fine and very uh, worthy and, in fact, a noble person. And uh, she was giving me treatment and benefiting me greatly very much. And she said to me, you know, uh, if you can't afford this, uh, I'll come here and treat you for free. And I said, no, that can't be right. I've done that in more than one situation where good-hearted people offered to give something that I could easily afford. That too is theft. To demand more than a just price for something we're selling, or to demand more than a just wage for our work, 
That also is theft. I knew a remarkable man who worked in the automotive industry in Ohio. He refused to belong to the union. He felt that the union was a coalition of thieves. And uh, yet the union got quite a large increase in the wage. And every single payday, he would take his check and then give out of his pocket the cash that he felt he was being overpaid. And he would give it back to them. It must have driven the bookkeeper crazy. But he did it every single payday. He gave back what he felt was not his because he did not want to be a thief. And I can assure you he wasn't an anxious or overreacting man. In fact, he was extremely peaceful and even a meditative man. Not paying our debts is a form of theft, including not paying taxes and enforcing others to give us something we want from them, whether it's material or whether it's even metaphysical. Getting people to be friendly to us that don't want to be our friends. I knew a woman who was such a literal holy terror that people were terrified of having a party or any kind of social gathering and not inviting her. They all disliked her very much. She was an extremely unpleasant and spiteful person. But they were literally afraid to say to her, no, we don't want you around. And she couldn't have done anything to them anyway. Theft is also not giving to others what we owe them, not necessarily in the sense of a business contract, or what we're legally or morally obligated to give. You know, a lot of people, and especially churches and religious groups, expect others to continually give them things or render them services which they're perfectly capable of paying for. Now, I'm not talking about unsolicited, gift, unsolicited gifts or charity. That's a virtue. But these people keep demanding everything, or they want big discounts for everything given to them. I've actually known of businessmen who would not deal with any religious groups because they're always demanding either a big discount or things given to them for free. Now, everything I've mentioned are, of course, inner or outer acts. But we must remember, again, that Vyasa holds out to us the ideal of a state of freedom from desire. This is the goal of abstinence from stealing. Actually, a stay is the means to a higher end. What we have to attain is a state of mind in which there's absolutely no desire or impulse to steal. Shankara says, stealing cannot exist in those whose desire has been cut off. Well, we've, missed, we've mentioned desire. So let's go to the big bugaboo, the thing that virtually nobody wants to hear about. That step in the divine yamaniyama path called brahmacharya. Vyasa, in his comments on the Yoga Sutras, defines it for us. He says, brahmacharya is restraint of the sex organ and other senses. So brahmacharya has a twofold nature. It's both control and continence or abstinence. 
The reason, of course, sex is expressed so prominently is that that's the strongest of the desires and the strongest addicting force that we need to abstain from. Existence itself in the cosmos has two aspects, consciousness and energy. Consciousness is constant, but energy is cyclic. It's the movement of energy that produces and actually is our experience of relative existence. And it is the development of energy that is the process of evolution. As a consequence, the conservation and application of energy is the main thing that determines success or failure in spiritual endeavor. Diffusion and dissipation of energy always weakens us and weakens us throughout our being. Because of this, brahmacharya is a vital element of yoga, without which we cannot successfully pursue the greater life of higher consciousness. Now there are those who say that they can manage without brahmacharya. Well, let them try. It will all come out in the final summation of their life. But basically, brahmacharya is the conservation and the mastery of all the energy systems and the powers that go to make up our evolving complex. This is especially true in relation to negative emotions, for tremendous energy is expended through lust, anger, and greed, envy, hatred, resentment, depression, fear, obsession, and all the side, all these similar things. Also, they're both the causes and symptoms of losing self-control. And self-control is the whole idea of brahmacharya, as far as our practice goes. Research has shown that people in the grip of those emotions literally breathe out vital elements of the body. For example, the breath of angry people is found to be laden with copper. So negative emotion depletes us physically as well as energetically. Positive emotions, on the other hand, actually enhance and raise our energy and physical levels. The cultivation of, of real, authentic love, compassion, generosity, cheerfulness, friendliness, and such like make us stronger and calmer. They can even heal diseases. These two are essential aspects of brahmacharya. It's noteworthy that the word virtue is derived from the Latin word virtus, which means power. And that, in turn, is derived from the Sanskrit word virya, which means both power and strength. Every atom of our personal energy has both a place and a purpose. To ensure the correct placement and expenditure of energy is the essence of yogic science, and brahmacharya is its foundation. As I've already said, sexuality is a thing that usually comes to mind because of its powerful. It's a terrible grip, actually, and it is terrible, an influence on the human being. So it's considered by the yogis that if sex is mastered, all the senses will be mastered as well. Now, there is no way to convince those who are addicted to and enslaved by sex to believe that continence is the supreme wisdom. But a few facts can be meaningful to the sincere seeker, so let's take a look. 
The life of the senses stifles the life of the spirit because it carries away the discrimination of the intellect. In the Gita, Krishna says, the mind which follows in the wake of the wandering senses carries away discrimination as the wind a boat on the waters. Discrimination, vivaka, the ability to tell what is good, what is negative, what is helpful, what is destructive. People harm themselves all the time. They sit, they, they suck on that cigarette and breathe the smoke out into your face and tell you that it never has done them a bit of harm and they knew somebody that smoked five packs a day and lived to be nearly 100 years old. Addicts always talk like this. They also like to say, why can't you accept me as I am? What would they do if you really answered that question? The basic life force, the prana, is dissipated through any intense activity of the senses and thus weakens the entire being, and especially the inner being. But sexual indulgence is incalculably more destructive of consciousness than any other form of sense experience. For example, have you ever heard of anybody that needed to go to a psychiatrist because they heard an ugly piece of music or saw an ugly picture? A read or ate, uh, either or either read a worthless bad or bad book, or ate bad food. In fact, maybe even got a little sick on the food. Of course not. But the history of psychiatry is loaded with examples of people who are mentally damaged, emotionally damaged through sex. I mean, that's the that's the human experience. That's a matter of record. Freud, they often accuse of being obsessed with sex. He wasn't obsessed with sex. He was aware that it was the prime destroyer of the human mind and personality. The Prashna Upanishad says, It is in those who have tapasya and brahmacharya that truth is established. And the Gita speaks of worthy yogis as being firm in their vow of brahmacharya. So there's no need to say any more. I would like to recommend that you read The Practice of Brahmacharya by Swami Shivananda, which you can download from the Divine Society website. And there are various articles also posted on our ocoy.org website that I am sure you'll find helpful. The next rung on our ladder of ascent is aparigraha, which means non-possessiveness, non-greed, non-selfishness, and non-acquisitiveness. Vyasa's definition is very practical, simply this. Seeing the defects and objects involved in, in acquiring them and defending them and losing them and being attached to them, and depriving, depriving sorry, others of them, one does not take them to himself, and that is a parigraha. Here, as with the other yamas and niyamas, the true virtue or observance is mostly internal, leading to the correct state of mind. Basically, when a person sees all the effort expended on things, as well as the unhappiness that comes with both keeping and losing them, 
he wisely backs away and frees himself from what we can call thingolatry, the worship of things. Of course, we all have to obtain and use many different kinds of things, but we can do so objectively, not letting ourselves get stuck up in them, like the rabbit got stuck in the tar baby in the Uncle Remus story. Being possessed by possessions is truly a great misery. And the belief that happiness comes from external things is truly a great folly. For one thing, possessions often somehow completely sap away our life force and even our mental powers. I knew a man whose father was extraordinarily rich and he was going to become extraordinarily rich. And he had no personality and he had no will at all. I introduced him once to a friend of mine who was highly intellectual <laughs> and who also did come. Actually, he didn't just come from a powerful social family. He came from a royal family, actually. And after meeting this uh, man whose father was the super rich, he said to me, if he wasn't a rich kid, he'd be nothing. And that's absolutely true. People do literally lose themselves in getting stuff. <laughs> For they adopt a completely false self-concept. To think that we are what we have is to forget who and why we are. So a parigraha clears the inner eye and lets us see our true face. I find it very interesting that after listening, ahimsa, satya, asteya, brahmacharya, and a parigraha, Patanjali continues in the 31st verse, These not conditioned by class, place, time, or occasion, and extending to all stages, constitute the great vow, the Mahavrata, the great discipline, we could even call it. They are the great vow because they require the exercise of will and because of their effect on us, which is very dynamic. Even more, they're great because, like the elements, the physical elements, they're self-sufficient, depending on nothing else, and they can't be mutated into something else. They're always what they are, and for that reason are always to be observed with no exceptions whatever. We can't neglect or omit them for any reason, absolutely. Now, Patanjali lists the possible conditions which do affect lesser observances, class, place, time, occasion, and stages. Let's look at each one in turn. Class. No one can mitigate or omit the observance of ahimsa, satya, asteya, brahmacharya, and aparigraha because of who he is. In yoga, no one is above the law. That is, no one can produce the effects of yama with, uh, without their observance. I knew an archbishop that had a marvelous sense of humor. And once he made a pungent remark about someone, and a woman who heard him objected, saying, but that remark is not Christian. And he smiled and said, Madam, I do not have to be a Christian. I am an archbishop. Now, he was joking, but this is an attitude of many that springs from the blindness of egotism. The next in Patanjali's list is place. 
whatever may be the ways of a particular place or group of people in which we find ourselves, the observances of Yama are incumbent upon us. When in Rome, do as the Romans is one of the silliest little sayings ever coined. Peer pressure can never, it must never be an influence on us. Nor should unjust rules or laws have any effect on us. What is right has to always be done. The will or opinion of others cannot change our obligation to observe the great vow. Nor can external conditions change it. Not even to save our lives can we turn from what is forever right. Now again, I'm talking about yogis. Other people, well, they'll do what their whim dictates. But yogis must be different. In the 19th century, there was a wonderful little leaflet uh, that was circulated by the Methodist Church in England, later in America, and it was simply called, Others May, You Cannot. We have to understand this is one aspect of yoga. When we put our feet on the yogic path, that's not the path the rest of the world is walking, and therefore the rules are completely different. Next, Patanjali says stage is something that cannot be an effect for us. The next quality that Patanjali lists is time or occasion. For some reason, human beings have always thought that now completely wipes out what was right or true in the past. It does not. It's like mathematics. One and one happened to be two a billion years ago, just like it is right now. True spirituality, true religion, is pure spiritual mathematics. There's no situation which can legitimately affect any change in what must be done by us as aspirants to yoga. Again, those who don't aspire, that's a whole other story. Aversion to being out of step or alienated from society has no place in the mind and heart of the yogi. I remember very well being threatened by my father. You will become an outcast from the family. Well, that would have to be their choice. But I had chosen to follow the way of the yogi. And by the way, I didn't become an outcast. The last point is stage. This is incredibly important. We never get beyond the observance of the great vow. Those at the very end of the spiritual journey are as obligated to fulfill the great vow as those who are at the beginning. Also, we cannot go too far or overdo our observance of the vow. It is all or nothing. Vyasa says, Ahimsa and the others are to be maintained all the time and in all circumstances and in regard to all objects without any conscious lapse. Shankara, interestingly enough, points out that the great vow has to be observed by us in relation to all beings, not just human beings. And perhaps what is most important in this day of modern yoga world. A master is never beyond the law. 
a master has to follow the great vow to talk about Leela and to say that, oh, it was done for this and that reason and helpful to another person is absolutely not true. There is no such thing as crazy wisdom. There's no such thing as law-breaking wisdom. Buddha followed every single precept he spoke to the moment he breathed his last. So does every true spiritual teacher. A person who breaks the observance of these rules, claiming that there's either a higher purpose and so on, is a rogue and a scoundrel or else a fool or else crazy. And we should run from such a person as fast as we possibly can. To sum it all up, the psychological nature of these five components of the great vow and their very observance is based upon three important possessions the yogi must have right from the start. Courage, self-respect, and self-knowledge. And that happens to be the simple truth.